records because Jack you know, goes nuclear might have touched posted 16 hours ago Donald Trump returned like 15 boxes to the National Archives after an entire year before after he left the White House in January of 2021 and the archives were like you stole these records can you please return it back and Trump was like no 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 I didn't steal them what oh are you talking about I, I, I don't have anything and then finally they're like no you know you took them return these documents and like Donald Trump said okay I'll give you everything I have and then back in January 2022 Trump with the help of Corcoran and others assembled 15 boxes to return to the National Archives and in them Christina Bob, because Boris Epstein, who's another lawyer of Donald Trump, told Corcoran basically, hey, Bob's an idiot. Get Bob to write the idiot declaration, basically saying that all of the documents have been returned. Let her commit perjury. And so Corcoran was like, Bob, Christina Bob, you need to write this declaration. Say that you did this diligent search and that there are no more records that exist at Mar-a-Lago. That, that, that they're all being returned right now um, to the FBI. And she said, fine, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But I just want to add, based on the information told to me, because Bob never even did a search of Mar-a-Lago. So they turn over the Redweld folder to the Department of Justice saying this is everything and the Department of Justice are like we're not dumb we know you have thousands more records at Mar-a-Lago and they're like no we don't no we don't we certified it like okay fine fine they get a search warrant based on a probable cause declaration showing that Donald Trump was committing crimes violations of the Espionage Act concealment and mutilation of records and obstruction of justice the Department of Justice and the FBI um, get the search warrant there's a probable cause determination reached by a federal judge a search warrant executed and there ain't no diligent search that was done back in June because on August 8th the Department of Justice immediately found thousands of other records including over a hundred more classified records including sensitive compartmented information and Corcoran Bob and to some extent Haba were involved in all of that and Haba was also involved because she's signing declarations in New York Attorney General Letitia James proceeding and her declarations are saying that she searched Trump's office and, she, and there's nothing responsive to the discovery requests by New York Attorney General Letitia James but She's implicating Donald Trump in more crimes because sensitive compartmented information and classified records were found in Donald Trump's office, which she claims she searched, and she doesn't have a security clearance. So all of that's going down. And now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Roan. If you're like me, you understand the pains of finding out what to wear. 
let's face it, most clothes are uncomfortable or too tight or never actually the size that you really are, and not to mention the annoyance of trying to put together a good outfit. And when you finally do have a good fit, you can only wear it for a few hours before you have an important meeting or dinner, and then you have to change. Everyone wants to dress their best and look good at all times because, frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention, and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable... Here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion, the move a lot, whether it's jumping from meeting to meeting. Donald Trump's lawyers, at least we know Evan Corcoran, when in the special counsel's office, are employing very important and critical and aggressive tactics to try to make sure the truth comes out and that Donald Trump's lawyers, who aided and abetted his criminality, are held to account and don't abuse the privileges like attorney-client privilege to try to cover up their criminality, specifically what we're learning about, at least as it relates to one of Trump's lawyers. And my guess is that this is going to happen with all of the three Trump lawyers that we're aware of right now who went before the criminal grand juries in Washington, D.C., right? Those three that special counsel Jack Smith compelled to testify before the grand juries include Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob, and Alina Haba. We know from a New York Times bombshell report, as well as reporting from numerous other media outlets, as well as our own sources here at the Midas Touch Network, that special counsel Jack Smith has made a motion to compel additional testimony by Evan Corcoran when Corcoran previously testified uh, before the criminal grand jury, which we reported very recently that Corcoran um, testified before the grand jury. And so, to be very clear, these lawyers were all involved in various of Donald Trump's machinations, um, but specifically, they're particularly relevant in Donald Trump's obstruction of justice as it relates to the theft of government records because you know you may recall that back in uh january of 2022 donald trump returned like 15 boxes to the national archives after an entire year before after he left the white house in january of 2021 and the archives were like you stole these records can you please return them back and trump was like no 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 i didn't steal them what are you talking about i i, I don't have anything and then finally they're like no we know you took them Return these documents. Donald Trump's like, okay, I'll give you everything I got. So back in January of 2022, Trump, with the help of Corcoran and others, assembled 15 boxes to return to the National Archives. And in them, in those boxes, are classified records, government records, newspaper clippings, and interlaced, like within the newspaper clippings, is sensitive compartmented information, like the most top secret of secret documents that exist in our national security apparatus. So then this matter was referred to the Department of Justice and the FBI. And then in June, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, they met with FBI agents and the Department of Justice. And they said, look, all right, all right, all right. We found like 30 more documents. We, we have them all in a red weld folder. There's some sensitive compartmented information. There's some classified records. Here it is. This is everything. 
And Corcoran had Christina Bob because Boris Epstein, who's another lawyer of Donald Trump's, told Corcoran basically, hey, Bob's an idiot. Get Bob to write the idiot declaration, basically saying that all of the documents have been returned. Let her commit perjury. And so Corcoran was like, Bob, Christina, Bob, you need to write this declaration. Say that you did this diligent search and that there are no more records that exist at Mar-a-Lago. That, that, that they're all being returned right now um, to the FBI. And she said, fine, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But I just want to add based on the information told to me, because Bob never even did a search of Mar-a-Lago. So they turn over the Redweld folder to the Department of Justice, saying this is everything. And the Department of Justice are like, we're not dumb. We know you have thousands more records at Mar-a-Lago. And they're like, no, we don't. No, we don't. We certified it. Like, okay, fine, fine. They get a search warrant based on a probable cause declaration showing that Donald Trump was committing crimes like violations of the Espionage Act, concealment and mutilation of records, and obstruction of justice. The Department of Justice and the FBI uh, get the search warrant. There's a probable cause determination reached by a federal judge, a search warrant executed, and there ain't no diligent search that was done back in June because on August 8th, the Department of Justice immediately found thousands of other records, including over a hundred more classified records, including sensitive compartmented information. And Corcoran, Bob, and to some extent Haba were involved in all of that. And Haba was also involved because she signed declarations in New York Attorney General Letitia James proceeding. And her declarations are saying that she searched Trump's office and, she, and there's nothing responsive to the discovery requests by New York Attorney General Letitia James. But she's implicating Donald Trump in more crimes because sensitive compartmented information and classified records were found in Donald Trump's office, which she claims she searched and she doesn't have a security clearance. So all of that's going down. And now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Roan. If you're like me, you understand the pains of finding out what to wear. Let's face it, most clothes are uncomfortable or too tight or never actually the size that you really are, and not to mention the annoyance of trying to put together a good outfit. And when you finally do have a good fit, you can only wear it for a few hours before you have an important meet. Absolutely love Roan. This has truly become my go-to commuter fit. We're on the move a lot. Whether it's jumping from meeting to meeting or catching a flight or an important dinner, the Roan commuter slash Midas and use code Midas. It's time to find your corner office. And now, back to the video. So, Donald Trump's lawyers, at least we know Evan Corcoran, when they're going before the grand jury, they're compelled by special counsel Jack Smith, and he's asking questions. Now, the attorney-client privilege protects confidential communications between attorneys and their client. The privilege is held by the client, not the attorney. But all of those communications are confidential that takes place. However, if the client talks about it publicly, that can be a waiver of the privilege. And then communications, for example, with third parties, like when Corcoran or Bob, by the way, when they speak to the media, that clearly waives privileges. And when they speak to the FBI, those communications with the FBI and third parties are not privileged communications. But the communication between Trump and them is 
presumed to be attorney-client privilege and confidential. So, for example, if uh, Jack Smith or one of his team members before the grand jury, just picture this in your mind. You got Corcoran sitting there. You got Jack Smith or more likely one of Jack Smith's lawyers like Tom Windham or someone who's basically asking a question and saying, so what did Donald Trump tell you about the search that Donald Trump did? So that's a private communication between Trump and Corcoran or Trump and Bob or Trump and Haba, right? Whatever that is. So what Corcoran did is saying, I can't answer that. Well, why can't you answer that? Um, Donald Trump is asserting the attorney-client privilege. That is a confidential communication. Trump has the privilege, and I'm not allowed to give you our confidential communications. So what did special counsel Jack Smith do, at least with Corcoran? Multiple sources are saying a special new case or a new filing before Judge Beryl Howell, who's the federal judge, who oversees the criminal grand juries in Washington, D.C. The grand jury proceedings are all done in secret. That's the way grand juries operate. That's why, other than through reporting, we don't know the specifics of what is going on. But what you can occasionally see, for example, is, okay, a new action is opened. It's an action against Corcoran. We don't know what motions are being filed. What is this mysterious action? Well, it turns out this action is a motion to compel Corcoran to discuss his communications with Donald Trump under an exception to attorney-client privilege. That exception is called the crime-fraud exception. Basically, if the client is utilizing the lawyer to commit criminal conduct, even if the lawyer is not technically a criminal co-conspirator, but they are being used. But clearly, if the lawyer is aiding and abetting the crime, that would count as well. There is no attorney-client privilege because the law doesn't want clients to shield criminality by using a lawyer and using the shield of the confidential attorney-client privilege. Now, we learned... Well, I learned about it in law school and through my legal career, but we as a Midas Mighty community learned about attorney-client privilege and the crime-fraud exception where? Where have you heard it before? With John Eastman, right? Remember that John Eastman, in response to the January 6th committee subpoena for Eastman's records, emails, text messages, Eastman, who was a professor at a law school in California called Chapman University, Eastman filed a lawsuit before a federal judge in the Central District of California, Judge David Carter, basically asking for an injunction, asking the federal judge to block the, uh, to block the January 6th committee from getting these records, these text messages, on the basis of attorney-client privilege. Judge David Carter, the federal judge, did the analysis of attorney-client privilege and said, well, there is an attorney-client relationship, so I will presume these are confidential records. Let's see, though, if there is the crime-fraud exception. And Judge David Carter said, this wasn't an attorney-client relationship. 
this was a coup in search of a legal theory between mm-hmm. John Eastman and Donald Trump. It's a two-step analysis to determine if the crime fraud exception applies. The first of the two steps of the crime fraud exception is one, is a crime committed? And Judge David Carter in that matter said, yeah, a crime is committed. The crime is obstruction and, and conspiracy, basically to overthrow our democracy on January 6th. The next step is where are the emails, documents, text messages at issue in furtherance of those crimes? Are they in furtherance of the crimes that we've established existed? And then Judge David Carter said, yeah, with these groups of emails, they were, right? There was like a perjurious um, uh, declaration that Donald Trump signed. There were emails of Eastman saying, look, we know we're breaking the law here. So yeah, those are furtherance of the crime. Those are just a sample of the documents in that case. So why am I bringing that case up? Because I want to remind you, it's the same analysis that's going to go before Judge Beryl Howell as special counsel Jack Smith moves to compel the documents and communications and emails of Evan Corcoran, who we know there's a motion to compel filed, and likely going to do the same with Alina Haba and Christina Bob. And not just documents, it's also testimonial. It's also saying, what did they tell you? What 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 were you told? What did you what did you hear Donald Trump say to you at, at, at those times? So we do the two-step analysis. One, is there a crime committed? And yeah, we look at the search warrant that was executed at Mar-a-Lago where probable cause was determined. So Jack Smith will say a magistrate judge has already found probable cause of criminality here, of obstruction, of concealment and mutilation, and of violations of the Espionage Act. So now the question is, were these communications at issue either direct oral communications or emails, text messages in furtherance of the criminality that a magistrate judge in federal court has already found to exist. And I think it will probably be easy for Jack Smith to establish that if you just followed the analysis that I did, because clearly Corcoran and Bob, when they're signing perjurious declarations, when she's giving attestation saying diligent searches were done, when no diligent search was done, then that invokes the crime fraud exception. But this shows special counsel Jack Smith is being as aggressive as you can be. Jack, don't play. In other words, Jack Smith is saying, you're, you're, we know exactly what you're doing. Not only are we going to be aggressive and call Trump lawyers, when you start doing that BS attorney-client privilege garbage, when you are obstructing justice, we are going to compel and we are going to fight you every step of the way and make sure you testify. Now, this does not necessarily mean that Corcoran and Haba and Christina Bob are being criminally investigated themselves um, because it doesn't necessarily require a lawyer to be involved in the criminality. They don't have to be a co-conspirator. They could simply be being used in the criminality, um, but it, it could suggest that as well. So what will also be interesting to find out is someone like Alina Haba invoking her Fifth Amendment rights? Is someone like an Evan Corcoran going to be invoking their Fifth Amendment rights? Is someone like Christina Bob going to start invoking her Fifth Amendment rights? Um, and then the question is, if they do that, 
What other emails and documents and records exist, though, that may have been created, which are not implicated by their invocation of their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination? So you see the complexity of the issues at stake here. But ultimately, you got special counsel Jack Smith being very aggressive, filing these motions to compel Evan Corcoran, and likely the other lawyers. We don't know yet about the other motions, but we know about the motion with Evan Corcoran compelling his additional testimony based on the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. Hey, hit the subscribe button right now. We're on our way to 1 million subscribers thanks to your support. We're marching to 1 million. Let's hit 1 million subscribers by March. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. We have a lot of exclusive content there, and it helps grow this independent media channel. And finally, make sure you're subscribed to the Midas Touch podcast. Wherever you get your audio podcast, search for the Midas Touch podcast. You could also search for the Legal IF podcast, search for the Political Beatdown podcast, search for the Majority 50. Okay, let's see what other, other things, groovy stuff we got. House Oversight Committee holds hearing Twitter executives. On Hunter Biden laptop. <laughs> We're focused on pronouns rather than how we have the most lethal military. Rick Scott. Forbes breaking news. House Judiciary hearing on weaponization of them. Six days ago. Jackson. 50 minutes ago. New subpoena. Yep. Mark Meadows covered that. Hey, Hitler's manifesto. You're always on the it's move. You deserve a checking account that can keep pace with your calendar. With free checking from like 1AZ. Seriously disappeared. Civ library of documentary features everything from the ancient origins of our earliest ancestors to the daring mission to sink the Bismarck. History Hit has hundreds of exclusive documentaries with unrivaled access to the world's best historians. We're committed to bringing history fans award-winning documentaries and podcasts that you cannot find anywhere else. Sign up now for a free trial and Timeline fans get 50% off their first three months. Just be sure to use the code TIMELINE at checkout. And it's there that one man notices him. Captain Carl Mayer. He spots talents that can be used for two things. On one hand, the intelligence services of the army, and on the other, the propaganda services, including possible speakers. Carl Mayer takes on Hitler as a spy. His mission? Infiltrate the DAP, the German Workers' Party, affiliated with the extreme right. And there, Hitler feels particularly comfortable. He does what he's asked, but much more because at a certain point, he takes to the floor, and that is a key moment, because he discovers something he wasn't aware of, his talent as a speaker. And it's in Munich, in brasseries like this one, that Hitler progressively becomes leader of the NSDAP party. Several times a week, he launches into two-hour-long monologues. 
At the start, he only seduces a handful of militants, but ends up captivating thousands of people. At the start of the 20s, Hitler is a skilled agitator in bars. But he has no intention of writing. One event will change that. What happened was Mussolini's example of marching on Rome, which gave Hitler ideas. So in November 1923, Hitler imitates Mussolini. He's 34 and at the head of a rising political party. And at his sides is one of the heroes of the First World War, General Ludendorff. In Munich, the two men decide that the time has come to take power by force. Hitler and his troops dramatically interrupt a meeting of the Bavarian government. Hitler arrives in the middle of this meeting. Revolver shots are fired at the ceiling. There's a slightly farcical side to the whole thing, because he arrives, fires a pistol, makes a speech. At the time, Charlie Chaplin's impression of him is not yet known, but we can imagine it's a bit like that. And he threatens those who don't want to follow him. But the operation fails. Behind their barricades, in the street, the members of the Putsch are crushed by the army. Sixteen of them are killed. Hitler is safe and sound, but he is arrested and thrown in prison. The Landsberg Fort, 60 kilometers from Munich. When he arrives there, Hitler is at his lowest point. We know that Hitler weighed 72 kilograms when he arrived and would quickly lose weight. He became depressed and started a hunger strike. He even apparently thought about suicide after the failure of the putsch. It was a pitiful failure, and not only did he not have the audience he wanted in Bavaria, but he became the laughingstock of all the newspapers. Hitler's story could have stopped there. However, at the back of cell 7, where it was least expected, he finds a new lease of life. He knows he risks the death penalty, so for the first time in his life, he starts to write. 60 pages. He prepares his defense for his imminent trial. And the seed of the idea was sown to write about his experiences and his enemies. So in 1923, it was about settling the score with his enemies. Three months later, journalists are jostling at the start of the trial. This historic image shows the conspirators of the Putsch. Accused of high treason, they all plead not guilty. All except one, who stands up to the judge, Adolf Hitler. And there, he uses the trial as a platform. Hitler had the charisma. Hitler was charismatic, and those around him felt it. 
that's what was fatal in his character, that he could influence people personally. Listeners hung on his every word. Everything that he dreamt up, people believed. Finally, Ludendorff is acquitted. The others receive minimal sentences. As for Hitler, he is also a winner in this trial. He risked the death penalty. Instead, he is sentenced to five years in prison and only serves nine months. And in exceptional conditions. In his cell, he has access to newspapers, drinks his tea from China cups, with an amazing view of the countryside. Even better, dressed in his normal clothes, he talks to his fellow prisoners. Among them, he finds friends and former putsch comrades like Rudolf Hess, who would become one of the key figures of the Third Reich. They could go into the common room when they liked during the day. They were free in their movements and to talk to each other. It was a bit like a flat share for men. In this four-star prison, Hitler is treated like a star. Since his trial, he's become a kind of celebrity. Everybody wants to see him or give him gifts. He receives biscuits, flowers, letters of encouragement from fans like this one, starting with, my beloved Führer. The leading figures of Bavaria also rush to talk to him. The visitor's book is full to bursting, just like these cards detailing each interview to the last minute. And among the 330 visitors, there are some celebrities. General Ludendorff and also Wagner's granddaughter. Many encourage him to continue writing. And notably, Helena Beckstein. The heiress of the piano brand gives him a crucial present. A brand new Remington. She often visited him during this period, and so it's thought it must have been a gift from her, as these machines were very expensive at that time, and having such a device was not self-evident. Hitler has time. His party needs rebuilding, and he needs money to pay his lawyers. And so he thinks that writing a book could be a good idea. From there, a myth is born. Hitler, the orator, wouldn't have written anything himself. He would simply have dictated his text to Emil Maurice and Rudolf Hess. However, nowadays, historians think that is not the case. The Führer did indeed type his text in prison. The first volume at Landsberg he wrote alone. In any case, Rudolf Hess couldn't type very well. He learned to use it in prison. The others didn't really help him at that level, so he worked alone on the typewriter. This idea that Hitler dictated his work is a myth. It's false. Hitler rewrites his own story, 
giving himself a hero's role. But not only that, he takes advantage of his incarceration to read dozens of books, like the essay on the differences between human races by the French writer Gobineau. Or ones with charming titles such as Rassenhygiene, Racial Hygiene. Today, it may seem revolting, but at the time, these pseudo-scientific theories were successful. Newspapers talk about races with no embarrassment. Hitler uses this as a source of inspiration. He starts collecting them. He puts them all together in a kind of hard-to-swallow soup. He manages to give a terrible, nightmarish coherence to these racial books and ideas. And so the months go on. Hitler perfects his terrifying theory, that of the racial struggle. At the top of his imaginary pyramid are the Aryans, in other words, the Germans, in a permanent battle to protect the purity of their race. Their biggest enemy, the Jews who were considered a scourge. He is and remains a complete parasite, a scrounger, like a harmful bacteria always spreading further. His presence produces the effect of a parasitic plant. Wherever he settles, the people who welcome him will be wiped out eventually. Juden, in German, the Jews. It's one of the words that appears most often in Mein Kampf. It appears 373 times, an average once every two pages. An obsession for Hitler. He believes that they are responsible for all of Germany's failures, including their defeat in 1918. He tries to convince the Germans that the Jews are behind an international conspiracy to destroy Germany, and which is the cause of all their problems. He goes through the entire range of anti-Semitic discourse and brings it to its maximum intensity. At the end of 1924, Hitler leaves prison with hundreds of pages under his arm. And he doesn't have any difficulty publishing his text, which is extremely violent towards Jews. Because of his notoriety, publishers are lining up. The first books about him start to be released. Newspapers are talking about him. He was a star in the media at the time. Well, maybe not a star, but someone very well known outside of Bavaria and even outside of Germany. And so the possibility of publishing his first book was very attractive. Hitler has the choice, so he opts for the publisher who offers him the most money, Max Amann. He is also a friend, his former sergeant during the 1418 war. He runs a small publishing house and shares the same extremist ideas. But before the book is released, they have to find the right title, which is not easy. The first title of Mein Kampf was four and a half years of struggle against lies, cowardice and weakness. 
The title says a lot, but it's not very catchy. The publisher insists on a shorter title. More compact, synthetic, and something that could be catchy. In truth, we don't know exactly who chose the final title. One thing is sure, it will be Mein Kampf, my struggle. And for its release, it's highly advertised in the extreme right press. The best Christmas present, this newspaper suggests in December 1925. But when it arrives in bookshops, surprise, it's not a commercial success. A few thousand copies appeal to Nazi supporters, but the work does not break through as much as was predicted. Worse still, some newspapers annihilate him. Hitler is a political agitator who no longer understands the world. His ideas come from a twisted mind. The truth is that Mein Kampf is a book that is mostly unreadable. For his contemporaries, it's mostly a hodgepodge of ideas, a kind of volcanic explosion that isn't completely under control. In truth, the public expected sensational revelations about the Putsch, that Hitler would reveal insider secrets. The expectation was too much. People expected to see a political bomb explode, and that was in no way what was in Mein Kampf. But Hitler insisted. In 1928, he even writes another work, which is totally unknown, nicknamed The Secret Book, another very aggressive work. However, this second book is never printed in his lifetime. The publisher refuses, given the poor sales of Mein Kampf. So, Mein Kampf could have stayed a small, unknown work. Except fate is about to take a dramatic turn. It's 1930, and the economic crisis in America hits a still weak Germany hard. In the space of four years, the country has over four million more unemployed. At the elections, Germans avoid the classic parties and vote for the extremes. Hitler's party goes from 3 to 18%. Straight away, sales of Mein Kampf go through the roof. 54,000 copies were sold just in 1930. We want to know what Hitler thinks, what he wants this man who has become part of the German political system. And in his quest for power, this book improves the Führer's image. It establishes Hitler's credibility as no longer just a political agitator, just a speaker, but a writer. It's something that matters in Germany. Germany is still a country that respects its doctors and professors. Nineteen thirty-three, 
Hitler amazes the whole world when he arrives in power almost by surprise. He is appointed Chancellor, though he only won 37% of the votes. To realize his dreams of greatness and the conquests he wrote about in Mein Kampf, he would need a united Germany. So, with the help of Goebbels, he uses one of the theories contained in his book, Propaganda. All effective propaganda must restrict itself to a few key points and enforce them with stereotypical formulas as long as required until the last of the audience is able to understand the idea. And one of the tools of this mass propaganda, of course, is Mein Kampf. Very soon, the state recommends that all government employees buy it. From 1936, it is given to all newlyweds. And then the Führer charmed the manufacturing industry. Thanks to rearmament, their orders increase eightfold. Businesses like Krupp hand it out to everyone. It was given as presents for birthdays and celebrations. Or it was given out like a bonus for good performances. And to boost sales, the publisher offers the book in all formats. Braille editions for the blind. Deluxe versions with a marble cover and gold-plated pages. A limited edition for high-ranking Nazi dignitaries. And the ultimate in propaganda, an enormous version in Bible format. It was a symbol of domination for the National Socialists. It was considered like the Bible of Nazism. And even more important than the book itself was its symbolic function that everyone said, we know Mein Kampf, it's the Führer's book. By force, the book becomes a bestseller and so ensures Hitler's fortune. Through royalties, he earns the equivalent of around 10 million euros. He can buy himself his famous base, the Berghof, and satisfy his taste for luxurious Mercedes cars. In total, 12.5 million copies were printed in Germany until 1944. Hitler earned around one Reichsmark, which means through this book he earned at least 12 million Reichsmarks. But behind the massive distribution, was Mein Kampf really read? This isn't certain. With its 700 pages and laborious text, the work certainly had enough to put people off. In 1940, Karl-Heinz Riener is enrolled in the Wehrmacht as a nurse. In his family, his father had received a copy from his company, but was not pleased with the gift. My father put the book on a shelf, and it stayed there until 1945. My father looked inside it and said it was a declaration of war, pure and simple, and added 
He would never read this nonsense. In fact, at the time, like many other Germans, Karl and his father underestimated Hitler. We didn't take Hitler seriously. We didn't think a man who wrote something like that could stay in power. And we made jokes about him. We laughed at him. In the end, it's true. Perhaps we should have taken him seriously. In other families, conversely, the book crystallized all their fears. In the suburbs of East Berlin, on the banks of the Spree, Lutz Rakov remembers perfectly the first time he heard talk of Mein Kampf. In 1938, Lutz was only six years old. His father, Otto, was an architect. One evening, he got all his friends together at their house to talk about Hitler's book. I was sat under the table instead of being in bed because I was curious to know what they were saying. I heard my father keep repeating, but read this book. And of course, they weren't talking about the Bible or anything else, but about Mein Kampf. Lutz doesn't know if his father's friends followed his advice. But one thing is sure, his father was one of the few Germans to understand the future catastrophes that this Nazi book forewarned. He was of the opinion that all the answers to what the Nazis were going to do were in Mein Kampf. At that time, I remember Hitler talked about freedom, freedom, freedom. And in reality, he was preparing for a war with all his force. And of course, this war that was in preparation had to stay completely secret. And that is exactly what started to worry Hitler. Y'all feeling lucky? Luke Combs here, and I have an exclusive opportunity for you to win a half a million dollars by joining me and the Living Lucky Secret. And that is exactly what started to worry Hitler. they should. Territory will justify the sacrifice of our own children. And in his hunger for this needed space, Hitler targets one country in particular, France. The mortal enemy, the merciless enemy of the German people is and remains France. Mein Kampf predicts, or in any case, legitimizes the idea of a revenge against France, a military revenge, and there are many very violent pages against France, which is seen as a symbol of racial mixing, a country of Negroes, it's the word used by Hitler, and a country of Jews. If the French took these threats seriously, they could prevent rearmament in Germany. So Hitler adopts a very daring strategy. November 1933, 
In Berlin, the Führer is visited by a French journalist, Fernand de Brunon, a supporter of becoming closer to Germany. He speaks German and, without a doubt, has already read the passages in Mein Kampf. And Hitler gives him a scoop, the first French interview with the new chancellor. When de Brunon asks Le Führer about his anti-trance statements in his book, Hitler uses a ruse as old as time, an outright lie. Hitler explains that he only wants peace. He's been through war, and Europe has already had too many deaths. Brunon has to ask him the question, as Mein Kampf is well known, saying that is not the opinion you have in mind Kampf. It's not about peace, it's about war. And Hitler replies to him, I've changed, as would a politician that is faced with a text from his youth. I've changed. I wrote this text in prison, in the fury of that time. And today I'm Chancellor. The interview is on the front page of the newspaper Le Matin, one of the biggest daily newspapers at the time, with a reassuring declaration from the Führer. War will settle nothing, it will only worsen the state of the world. But in France, one man doesn't believe a word and will do everything to fight Hitler's book. This man is Fernand Solot a publisher who had just started to break through in Paris in the 30s. Fernand Solo is a small publisher who publishes essays relating to political news. He publishes many political texts and literature. He's the fourth or fifth biggest publisher of foreign novels. Fernand Solo, whose politics are right-wing, at the time admires Mussolini, but Hitler and his work worry him a lot. In any case, this is how Francois Xavier Solot, one of the publisher's sons, remembers it. Thirty or forty percent of the text is anti-French. It's really an attack on the country. He hadn't fought in 14, he was too young, but he met my mother was very anti-German because my maternal grandfather was killed very early on in the 1914 war. Solo wanted to print Hitler's book to warn the French people and also for the commercial gain. The problem was that it would potentially be expensive. There were 700 pages to translate and above all Max Amann and Hitler refused any translation into French. Mein Kampf is packed full of anti-French passages. It is unthinkable that an uncensored version of the text would be released in French. So Fernand Solo finds himself at an impasse. That is, until the day he is called to the Ministry for Former Soldiers. There he is welcomed with complete discretion. A secret operation is underway. Solo is put into contact with a Jewish former soldier whose name is Maurice Ranikov. 
and who will introduce it into the ministry of former soldiers. And it's through this ministry that a team, unofficially of course, is put together. And so Solor begins a race against the clock. He wants to translate Mein Kampf into French as quickly as possible. And to do this, the ministry supplies seven experienced translators. Even better, the Liga, the League Against Anti-Semitism, buys 5,000 copies, meaning 50,000 francs for Solor. Which is absolutely crucial, since, as you can see, in an operation like this one, which has to be carried out quickly, money needs to be raised quickly, and that was done. The book is released in February 1934, with a slogan aiming to shock, everyone in France must read this book. Same turn of phrase on this poster. It plays on the fear that Mein Kampf inspires and predicts. A second world war is coming. Solor has pulled off a great book launch, but things soon take a different turn. Hitler is furious. This small French publisher is ruining his propaganda. Obviously, Hitler doesn't want the French to have access to his text without his propaganda and his ad hoc speeches. At that time, Hitler is on a pseudo-pacifistic offensive where he's declaring to anybody who will listen that he's a pacifist. From that perspective, Mein Kampf is a thorn in his side. So the Chancellor takes Solow to court. The case takes place in Paris at the Commercial Court. 5th of June 1934, the German and French lawyers face each other. The right to alert the public against copyright, Solow against the most powerful man in Germany. The sentence is given 13 days later and may seem shocking. The French courts rule in favor of the dictator. a chance to atone for what you have done. What exactly are you asking me to do? It is forbidden to print or sell Mein Kampf with a penalty of 100 francs per infraction. Existing books have to be destroyed, but this doesn't stop Solo. He gets around the law with abridged versions, in other words, pirated versions that are edited without the author's consent. As a bonus, he also manages to see off his stock with the collusion of the police. He sold a considerable number of books during this period, even after the court ruling, because when the Germans complained that the books were still on sale and demanded that the copies were seized from the publisher, the local police called my father to say, we are coming to see if you are still selling the book and seize any copies you have. And so we put all the books into a van. The police came and said there were no more copies. And that evening, the van came back and the next day we carried on. However, 
but Solow did fail in one aspect. The book didn't alarm any of the French elite. Even the 4,000 copies distributed by the Liga didn't have any effect. The decision makers were blinded by Hitler's pacifistic talk. They considered the book too violent to be real. It's unthinkable to follow the politics suggested in Mein Kampf. So it is thought that Hitler has cooled his opinions. There is a refusal to see the violence in Mein Kampf. But also a refusal to understand that German political culture was such that Hitler would do what he said. Meanwhile, the ideas in the book progressively penetrate people's minds on the streets and over the radio waves. Goebbels, propaganda minister, reads extracts from Mein Kampf. The Reich even developed a low-price radio so they could be present in every home. And at school, some teachers sing the praises of the Führer's cult. The children sing it. They are ready to live and die for Hitler, their savior, the most noble person in Germany. is putting into practice what is written in his book and so his hatred of Jews becomes part of the public consciousness. This sign says, Germans, your enemy is the Jew. The papers are full of shocking caricatures showing Jews with monstrous features controlling the world and as this terrible message is hammered home, some people end up believing it. I know that one day my brother came home from school crying and my mother asked why he was sad. My brother said that Mr. Kornheim, who was Jewish, had given him sweets. And the other children said to my brother, whoever eats food from the Jews will die. I heard this story and thought, I don't have any sweets, so I'm not in danger. In an insidious and perverse way, anti-Semitism establishes itself in Germany. But could the Holocaust have been foreseen from Mein Kampf? For once, historians agree unanimously. Of course, Mein Kampf doesn't talk about the gas chambers, but the book theorizes at length about the combat to the death that the Germans must lead, and that there can only be one winner between the racially pure German people and the Jews. The Germans must have been more or less aware of what Hitler had planned, with or without Mein Kampf. Hitler never left any doubt that he wanted to modify 
the Treaty of Versailles and take revenge on France and in the mind of anybody with any sense that can only mean war. But how the war would be led, against who and what future he held for the countries in the East, that is not written in Mein Kampf. Right up until the eve of the war, Europeans held on to the idea that peace with the Führer was possible. October 1938, Hitler announces that he is going to annex Czechoslovakia. This is a violation of the borders that had been defined in 1918. Europe is on the brink of war. Everything plays out here in Munich. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and the French Defence Minister, Edouard Daladier, are urgently rushed there. In the end, they prefer to... Hitler's Mein Kampf, the new timeline documentary <clears throat> called The Dark Mysteries of Hitler's Nazi Manifesto Mein Kampf. Timeline World History Documentaries YouTube channel, 4.66 million subscribers. That must be neat. It was posted a month ago to what the Nazis were going to do were in Mein Kampf. At that time, I remember Hitler talked about freedom, freedom, freedom. And in reality, he was preparing for a war with all his force. And of course, this war that was in preparation had to stay completely secret. And that is exactly what started to worry Hitler. already happened. 
question as Mein Kampf is well known, saying that it's not the opinion you have in Mein Kampf. It's not about peace, it's about war. And Hitler replies to him, I've changed. As would a politician that is faced with a text from his youth, I've changed. I wrote this text in prison, in the fury of that time. And today I'm chancellor. The interview is on the front page of the newspaper, Le Matin, one of the biggest daily newspapers at the time, with a reassuring declaration from the Führer. War will settle nothing, it will only worsen the state of the world. But in France, one man doesn't believe a word and will do everything to fight Hitler's book. This man is Fernand Solot, a publisher who had just started to break through in Paris in the 30s. Fernand Solot is a small publisher who publishes essays relating to political news. He publishes many political texts and literature. He's the fourth or fifth biggest publisher of foreign novels. Fernand Solot, whose politics are right-wing, at the time admires Mussolini, but Hitler and his work worry him a lot. In any case, this is how Francois Xavier Solot, one of the publisher's sons, remembers it. Thirty or forty percent of the text is anti-French. It's really an attack on the country. He hadn't fought in 14, he was too young. But he met my mother, who was very anti-German, because my maternal grandfather was killed very early on in the 1914 war. Solo wanted to print Hitler's book to warn the French people and also for the commercial gain. The problem was that it would potentially be expensive. There were 700 pages to translate. And above all, Max Amann and Hitler refused any translation into French. Mein Kampf is packed full of anti-French passages. It is unthinkable that an uncensored version of the text would be released in French. So Fernand Solot finds himself at an impasse. That is, until the day he is called to the Ministry for Former Soldiers. There he is welcomed with complete discretion. A secret operation is underway. Solot is put into contact with a Jewish former soldier whose name is Maurice Vanikov and who will introduce it into the Ministry of Former Soldiers. And it's through this ministry that a team, unofficially of course, is put together. And so Solow begins a race against the clock. He wants to translate Mein Kampf into French as quickly as possible. And to do this, the ministry supplies seven experienced translators. Even better, the Liga, the League Against Anti-Semitism, buys 5,000 copies meaning 50,000 francs for Solow. Which is absolutely crucial since, as you can see, in an operation like this one, which has to be carried out quickly, money needs to be raised quickly, and that was done. 
the book is released in February 1934 with a slogan aiming to shock. Everyone in France must read this book. Same turn of phrase on this poster. It plays on the fear that Mein Kampf inspires and predicts. A second world war is coming. Sorlo has pulled off a great book launch, but things soon take a different turn. Hitler is furious. This small French publisher is ruining his propaganda. Obviously, Hitler doesn't want the French to have access to his text without his propaganda and his ad hoc speeches. At that time, Hitler is on a pseudo-pacifistic offensive where he's declaring to anybody who'll listen that he's a pacifist. From that perspective, Mein Kampf is a thorn in his side. So the Chancellor takes Solo to court. The case takes place in Paris at the commercial court. 5th of June 1934, the German and French lawyers face each other. The right to alert the public against copyright. Solo against the most powerful man in Germany. The sentence is given 13 days later and may seem shocking. The French courts rule in favor of the dictator. He had better luck in court than Trump. It is forbidden to print or sell Mein Kampf with a penalty of 100 francs per infraction. Existing books have to be destroyed. But this doesn't stop Solo. He gets around the law with abridged versions, in other words, pirated versions that are edited without the author's consent. As a bonus, he also manages to see off his stock with the collusion of the police. He sold a considerable number of books during this period, even after the court ruling, because when the Germans complained that the books were still on sale and demanded that the copies were seized from the publisher, the local police called my father to say, we are coming to see if you are still selling the book and seize any copies you have. And so we put all the books into a van. The police came and said there were no more copies. And that evening, the van came back and the next day we carried on. <laughs> However, Solo did fail in one aspect. The book didn't alarm any of the French elite. Even the 4,000 copies distributed by the leaker didn't have any effect. The decision makers were blinded by Hitler's pacifistic talk. They considered the book too violent to be real. It's unthinkable to follow the politics suggested in Mein Kampf. So it is thought that Hitler has cooled his opinions. There is a refusal to see the violence in Mein Kampf, but also a refusal to understand that German political culture was such that Hitler would do what he said. Meanwhile, the ideas in the book progressively penetrate people's minds on the streets and over the radio waves. Goebbels, propaganda minister, reads extracts from Mein Kampf. 
the Reich even develop a low-price radio so they could be present in every home. And at school, some teachers sing the praises of the Führer's cult. The children sing it. They are ready to live and die for Hitler, their savior, the most noble person in Germany. In fact, Hitler is putting into practice what is written in his book, and so his hatred of Jews becomes part of the public consciousness. This sign says, Germans, your enemy is the Jew. The papers are full of shocking caricatures showing Jews with monstrous features controlling the world. And as this terrible message is hammered home, some people end up believing it. I know that one day my brother came home from school crying and my mother asked why he was sad. My brother said that Mr. Kornheim, who was Jewish, had given him sweets. And the other children said to my brother, whoever eats food from the Jews will die. I heard this story and thought, I don't have any sweets, so I'm not in danger. In an insidious and perverse way, anti-Semitism establishes itself in Germany. But could the Holocaust have been foreseen from Mein Kampf? For once, historians agree unanimously. Of course, Mein Kampf doesn't talk about the gas chambers, but the book theorizes at length about the combat to the death that the Germans must lead, and that there can only be one winner between the racially pure German people and the Jews. The Germans must have been more or less aware of what Hitler had planned, with or without Mein Kampf. Hitler never left any doubt that he wanted to modify the Treaty of Versailles and take revenge on France, and in the mind of anybody with any sense that can only mean war. But how the war would be led, against who and what future he held for the countries in the East, that is not written in Mein Kampf. Right up until the eve of the war, Europeans held on to the idea that peace with the Führer was possible. October 1938, Hitler announces that he is going to annex Czechoslovakia. This is a violation of the borders that had been defined in 1918. Europe is on the brink of war. Everything plays out here in Munich. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and the French Defence Minister, Édouard Dalidier, are urgently rushed there. In the end, they prefer to abandon their Czech ally in exchange for a promise of peace from Hitler. They sign the famous Munich Agreement. On their return, the French and British ministers are welcomed as heroes.
morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Peace seems to be preserved. Don't mind Hitler, take your holiday, advises the press. Which politics want to be in favor of declaring war? What politician wants to say, I want to go to war? The majority of European companies are pacifists. Never again do we want war, never again the First World War, never again the slaughter. And even after the Munich crisis, very few of the elite foresee war written in Mein Kampf. Churchill and the young Colonel de Gaulle saw it very early on. They said they were very worried, but at the time, they weren't in positions of power. The Gaulle is not in power. In England, Churchill has become almost an outsider. In 1939, the pacifistic talk which has been so carefully maintained collapses brutally. Germany attacks Poland and invades a large part of Europe. The Reich's troops march through Paris. Hitler celebrates. The whole world trembles at the thought of falling under the control of the Nazis. That is when the elite changed their mind about Mein Kampf. The harmfulness of Mein Kampf is discovered when Hitler starts to apply the politics that he had written about. So there's a discovery of what existed already, but that people didn't see or didn't want to see. That's when the fate of the book suddenly changes. Before 1939, the Allies hadn't seen its danger, but now they're going to use it to create effective counter-propaganda. That's what happens in the United States. There, Americans are protesting against the war. The average man is hardly thrilled with the idea of going to save Europe. Another war, not for me. This time America should keep out, and I know I will. In the event of war in Europe, I think we should stay out of it entirely. By all means, no. Yes, fight. No. 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 So the authorities broadcast clips like these. The scene takes place in a church at mass. To mobilize its troops, the film is aimed at the minorities attacked in the book. Mein Kampf becomes a weapon of persuasion. I'm not going to read all of this. But there are one or two things in this book that will interest you. I quote, From time to time, the illustrated papers show how a Negro has become a lawyer, a teacher, perhaps even a minister. It never dawns on the degenerate middle-class America that this is truly a sin against all reason, that it is criminal madness to train a born half-ape until one believes 
one has made a lawyer of him. This book was written 20 years ago. The plan which it foreshadowed has become a reality. At the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic, the propaganda around the book intensifies. War is also a battle of ideas. And to win it, the Reich wants to impose its Nazi doctrine in schools. Nasty Nazis. But this time, it takes place in conquered territories. It's a page of history that not much is known about.
was floating in the water. It was poison. It had to be disposed of. And neighbors threw everything that was poisonous into a hole. Arms and books that had become embarrassing. And in all of this was Mein Kampf. They stood out with their red covers. We covered all of that with earth and prayed to our guardian angels that they would never be discovered. Of course, with the advance of the Red Army, people were afraid of being checked or identified as people owning this book. They were scared the Russians would turn against them. That's why they got rid of it. From then on, in a defeated Germany, all Nazi symbols had to be removed. The Allies demand that the machines used to print Mein Kampf have to be destroyed. We always believed the welcoming spirit was a small town thing. It turns out... ...to use to print Mein Kampf have to be destroyed. Any republishing of the book is strictly forbidden in Germany. At that moment, nobody imagined that this best-seller would become a long-seller. Its author is dead. His work is filled with hate. His politics ended in an appalling massacre. However, his forbidden work continues to be published. In France, for example, after the war, Solo printed Mein Kampf and continues to do so. On average, 2,000 copies per year. And it's not the only one. My struggle in England. Amina Luta in Brazil. Wadi Fengdo in China. The book is published worldwide. And has been since the 1930s. It's impossible to ban its publication, especially in the age of the internet. And so, millions of copies have been sold since 1945. Mein Kampf continues to be read. Nazism, the Third Reich, Hitler, fascinate. There is also the fascination for what is forbidden. If it's forbidden, it must be interesting, so we seek it out. In Arab countries fighting against Israel, the book seduces anti-Semites. Even more surprisingly, Kavgam, the Turkish version, topped the bestseller list in 2005. Nearly 100,000 copies sold in two months when nationalists arrived in power. It is also surprisingly successful in India, where Hitler is sometimes quoted in management schools as a model of success. A country like India, where for years, decades, Mein Kampf has been successful, Mein Kampf is the symbol of a warmongering ultra-nationalism that imposes itself on its neighbors. Since the 1st of January 2016, the book has begun a new chapter in its story. In accordance with copyright law, the work becomes part of the public domain. In theory, nothing now stops it being republished. But in Germany, the book is still considered dangerous. As such, only critical editions like this one are authorized. 
the Führer's text is surrounded by 3,500 comments written by historians. Of course, we wanted to make a critical edition, one based on the essentials. It was about contradicting Hitler, correcting him. In France, the publisher Fayard took the same approach. A scientific council are preparing a version that is also commented in order to neutralize the hate and lies in the original text. After years on the battlefield and multiple concussions, migraine attacks followed me home. It got so bad that I curled up in a dark closet to block everything out, even my kids. That was the day I asked for Nurtec. Nurtec is the only medication Nurtec. that can treat and prevent my migraine attacks all in one. Don't take if allergic to Nurtec. When the Gaulish peoples are mentioned, we think of naked warriors, mysterious druids, and a defeated warlord knelt before the Roman eagle. From their prehistoric origins to their final doomed struggle against Rome, the ancient Celts developed a reputation as proud warriors, capable of savagery and bravery in equal measure. In this special documentary on the Gallic peoples, we will tell the sweeping story of the rise and fall of the robust Iron Age culture which once dominated nearly all of continental Europe. These long episodes are incredibly difficult to make, so consider liking, commenting and sharing to support our work. War supporters, by heading into battle, we've got a fight where you won't hear the screeching and roaring of a Celtic battle cry but the growls and booms of war machines in the modern age, because this video is sponsored by War Thunder. It's the most comprehensive vehicle combat game ever made, where you take military vehicles from the 1920s to today into intense PvP combat. And we don't just mean ground vehicles. One of the cool things about this game is that planes and ships are also available to support the battle. And the way these different playstyles and weapons interact in the matches is what makes the whole thing that more intense, and indeed more realistic. They've got over 2,000 vehicles, modelled down to their individual components with dedicated accuracy. But then you can also go through in-depth customization to make a vehicle your own. Join the fight now on PC, PS5, or Xbox Series X or S, or on older generation consoles. But make sure PC to do it via our link YouTube below to get a large channel. free bonus pack that unlocks premium the vehicles, time, boosters, discounts, Gaulish and more. So no use missing out on that. Here's the link in the description. <laughs> For the most part, the ancient Celts left virtually no written records of their own existence. So we are reliant almost see, solely um, on limited archaeological and etymological evidence to piece together. Carried out genocides. Killed systematically killed all the bards. There are no Irish records because the Romans destroyed them all and systematically oh shit. 
because the Romans destroyed or appropriated all of it and systematically murdered, oh fuck, destroyed or appropriated it all and systematically killed all the bards who were who were basically the historians at the time politics gal culture while in the centuries leading up to the birth of Christ a scattering of Greek and Roman writings give us a slightly more dynamic window into their society. Neither offer a complete survey of the Celtic world, but they provide us with a workable set of information that, in lieu of anything else, we have no choice but to rely on. The most popular narrative of the Celtic genesis can be found in the town of Halstad, which sits nestled against a lake between the idyllic peaks of the Alps. It was here, between the years of 1846 and 1863, that an Austrian mine operator, known as Johann Georg Ramsauer, excavated the derelict cemetery of an ancient salt mining community. The material culture discovered here was named the Hallstatt culture, after the town it was discovered in, and is widely considered to be the birthplace of an early Celtic society. The Hallstatt culture has since been broken up into four chronological phases, based on the evolution of artifacts found in its sites. Halstatt A and B emerged in the Late Bronze Age between 1200 to 800 BC in Central Europe. It was initially a minor deviation of the Indo-European Urnfield complex, an older material culture prominent across much of Central Europe. Halstatt's society was based on mining salt, copper and tin and trading them to outlying regions. These were crucial products for salt was used to preserve meat in winters, while copper and tin were used to forge bronze, the most precious metal of the era. The peoples of the Hallstatt heartland grew prosperous from this trade, which remained a core part of their economy for centuries to come. Around 800 BC, ironworking was introduced to the Hallstatt through trade with the Hittites and Greeks. This started the Hallstatt Sea era where the Proto-Celts came into their own as a culture distinct from the Urnfield complex. They built hill forts throughout Central Europe, populating them with artisans and warriors, led by petty chieftains. It was at this point in the early Iron Age that they started developing a class system and social inequality, becoming more hierarchical. Graves excavated from the Hallstatt A and B eras were uniformly simple and egalitarian in nature. However, burials from Halstatt Sea onwards show a great disparity in wealth and status. Clustered around their hill forts were great barrow mounds, the resting place of wealthy tribal elites. Here, nobles were buried alongside their treasures such as collars, brooches, axe heads, and other metalworks of bronze, iron, and gold. These valuables oft featured iconic geometric designs and animalistic motifs. The presence of ivory and amber in these barrows suggests that they maintained trade networks that extended as far out as the Baltics and North Africa. Equestrianism was likely a symbol of power and nobility during this era, 
evidenced by the presence of a distinct style of slender slashing sword present in many graves, best suited for cavalry warfare. Additionally, the highest tribal elites were buried alongside ceremonial bridles, tackles, and ornate horse-drawn colt wagons. The importance of the horse in aristocratic society was likely due to contact with the Indo-Iranian Cimmerians, from whom they adapted the horse and wagon as symbols of tribal power. It was perhaps through the mobility of the horse and their economic and cultural soft power that the Halstatt peoples expanded out of their traditional heartland and exported their cultural influence across much of Central Europe. The transition from Halstatt C to D occurred around 600 BC and was marked by the culture shifting west along the Danube, Rhine and Seine rivers, gravitating towards the Greek colony of Massalia, modern Marseille. The Phocian Greeks of Massalia were the early Celts' gateway to the riches of the Mediterranean world. Through them they imported all sorts of southern luxuries, including fine pottery, glass, and the most precious luxury of all, wine. Late Halstatt peoples soon began trading with other Mediterranean peoples, including the Phoenicians and the Etruscans, whose advanced civilization we've covered in a previous episode. The first historical mention of the Celts came in 517 BC from the Greek historian Hecateus of Miletus, who referred to the people living beyond Massalia as Keltoi. This word was possibly borrowed from a tribal endonym, or was Greek for the tall ones, contributing to the enduring stereotype that the average Celt stood a head taller than their Greco-Roman counterparts. Either way, it is a term that we still use today. Late Halstatt chieftains consolidated a great amount of power by virtue of the foreign wealth they controlled. The many small hill forts that dotted the landscape were largely replaced by fewer but larger population centers, such as the ruins of an impressive tribal complex at Hoenneburg in southern Germany. Meanwhile, the Barrow Mounds became more splendorous than ever before, inlaid with luxury imports from Greece and Etruria. By around 500 BC, the Hallstatt culture had reached its peak in wealth, territory, and influence. But how can we be sure that the Hallstatt material complex represents the early development of a distinct Celtic culture? First of all, the swords found in late Hallstatt graves closely resemble the weaponry that Greco-Roman writers described the Celts using in later centuries. Secondly, the importance of the symbolic horse and wagon in burials was considered an early form of later Celtic funeral rites, which saw chieftains buried within two-wheeled war chariots. The geometric and animalistic art style of the late Hallstatt era is accepted to be an early form of Celtic artwork, and perhaps most importantly, the name Hallstatt itself is derived from an old Celtic word meaning salt place. This is reinforced by the fact that in the Celtic languages of Welsh, Cornish and Breton, ah, the words for salt are Halwyn, Haloin and Holain, presumably cognates of the same ancient root as the ancient word from which the name of the modern town of Halstatt is derived. The evidence all seems to suggest that the Halstatt heartland was where the Celts emerged as a visible people group, featuring an early form of the Celtic language, tribal hierarchy and artistic expression. However, this theory has its problems. Although by the late Hallstatt period, artifacts belonging to the culture would be found from Britain to Croatia, it did not mean that all the peoples in these lands were early Celts. 
Additionally, not all Celtic speakers in the early Iron Age would have belonged to the Hallstatt culture. The early Celtic language that became associated with the Hallstatt heartland developed out of an older Indo-European tongue around 1500 BC and over centuries spread across much of Central and Western Europe. People on the periphery of the early Celtic world adopted the Proto-Celtic tongue due to the cultural and economic influence of the Hallstatt elites, but did not necessarily adopt the material culture. For example, Ireland and parts of Spain were predominantly Celtic-speaking by the 5th century BC, but the Celtic migrants there had mixed with the indigenous populations of those regions to form the Celt-Iberian and Gaelic cultures, which had little to no cultural continuity with the Hallstatt complex. Basically, there were those who followed the Hallstatt culture who were not Celtic-speaking, and Celtic-speaking peoples who were not of the Hallstatt culture. The prosperous world of the Hallstatt chieftains came to a sudden end around 450 BC, when the increasingly imperialistic Massalian Greeks decided to abandon their old trade connections to instead try and subjugate the Celts, while the Etruscans shifted their trade routes away from the Hallstatt heartland. As a result, Celtic power shifted to the north, evolving into Hallstatt's dynamic successor, Pila X. The Laten culture lasted from around 450 to 50 BC, and is the most iconic era of ancient Celtic history. Developing in four separate tribal centres, principally along the Moselle and Marne rivers, it soon expanded across much of Europe. By 300 BC, the Laten culture was dominant across Central Europe, France, Luxembourg, Belgium and Switzerland, and later would arrive in Britain, Western Spain and Ireland. Latin artwork was what the conventional mind considers quintessentially Celtic, featuring cauldrons, drinking vessels, weapons, shields, armor, and jewelry characterized by stylistic spiral patterns. It is here we slowly transition from relying primarily on archaeological finds and into the written attestations of classical Greek and Roman authors, who while often biased or misinformed, still give us a workable amount of information in piecing together the Celtic world, its language, politics, society, and religion. The general public may be familiar with the word Gaul, a term often used to refer to the Celts of the Latin world. This title comes from the old Germanic Valhas, meaning foreigner, which the Celts certainly would have been in the eyes of the ancient Germanic tribes. Meanwhile, when a young Roman Republic encountered the Latin Celts across the Alps in northern Italy, they referred to them as Galli, which might have been the name of an individual tribe they applied to the entire ethno-cultural group. We will use the words Gaul, Gallic, and Celtic in give us a slightly more dynamic All hill forts that dotted the landscape were largely replaced by fewer but larger population centers, such as the ruins of an impressive tribal complex at Huenneberg in southern Germany. Meanwhile, the Barrow Mounds became more splendorous than ever before, inlaid with luxury imports from Greece and Etruria. By around 500 BC, the Hallstatt culture had reached its peak in wealth, territory, and influence. But how can we be sure that the Hallstatt material complex represents the early development of a distinct Celtic culture? First of all, the swords found in late Hallstatt graves closely resemble the weaponry that Greco-Roman writers described the Celts using in later centuries. 
Secondly, the importance of the symbolic horse and wagon in burials was considered an early form of later Celtic funeral rites, which saw chieftains buried within two-wheeled war chariots. The geometric and animalistic art style of the late Hallstatt era is accepted to be an early form of Celtic artwork, and perhaps most importantly, the name Hallstatt itself is derived from an old Celtic word meaning salt place. This is reinforced by the fact that in the Celtic languages of Welsh, Cornish and Breton, the words for salt are Halwyn, Haloin and Holain, presumably cognates of the same ancient root as the ancient word from which the name of the modern town of Hallstatt is derived. The evidence all seems to suggest that the Hallstatt heartland was where the Celts emerged as a visible people group, featuring an early form of the Celtic language, tribal hierarchy and artistic expression. However, this theory has its problems. Although by the late Hallstatt period, artifacts belonging to the culture would be found from Britain to Croatia, it did not mean that all the peoples in these lands were early Celts. Additionally, not all Celtic speakers in the early Iron Age would have belonged to the Hallstatt culture. The early Celtic language that became associated with the Hallstatt heartland developed out of an older Indo-European tongue around 1500 BC and over centuries spread across much of Central and Western Europe. People on the periphery of the early Celtic world adopted the proto-Celtic tongue due to the cultural and economic influence of the Hallstatt elites, but did not necessarily adopt the material culture. For example, Ireland and parts of Spain were predominantly Celtic-speaking by the 5th century BC, but the Celtic migrants there had mixed with the indigenous populations of those regions to form the Celt-Iberian and Gaelic cultures, which had little to no cultural continuity with the Hallstatt complex. Basically, there were those who followed the Hallstatt culture who were not Celtic-speaking, and Celtic-speaking peoples who were not of the Hallstatt <laughs> culture. The prosperous world of the Hallstatt chieftains came to a sudden end around 450 BC, when the increasingly imperialistic Massalian Greeks decided to abandon their old trade connections to instead try and subjugate the Celts, while the Etruscans shifted their trade routes away from the Hallstatt heartland. As a result, Celtic power shifted to the north, evolving into Hallstatt's dynamic successor, the Laten. The Laten culture lasted from around 450 to 50 BC, and is the most iconic era of ancient Celtic history. Developing in four separate tribal centers, principally along the Moselle and Marne rivers, it soon expanded across much of Europe. By 300 BC, the Laten culture was dominant across Central Europe, France, Luxembourg, Belgium and Switzerland, and later would arrive in Britain, Western Spain and Ireland. Latin artwork was what the conventional mind considers quintessentially Celtic, featuring cauldrons, drinking vessels, weapons, shields, armor and jewelry characterized by stylistic spiral patterns. It is here we slowly transition from relying primarily on archaeological finds and into the written attestations of classical Greek and Roman authors who, while often biased or misinformed, still give us a workable amount of information in piecing together the Celtic world, its language, politics, society and religion. The general public may be familiar with the word Gaul, a term often used to refer to the Celts of the Latin world. This title comes from the old Germanic Valhas, meaning foreigner, which the Celts certainly would have been in the eyes of the ancient Germanic tribes. 
Meanwhile, when a young Roman Republic encountered the Laten Celts across the Alps in northern Italy, they referred to them as Galli, which might have been the name of an individual tribe they applied to the entire ethnocultural group. We will use the words Gaul, Gallic, and Celtic interchangeably, but generally this was not how the peoples in question referred to themselves. Indeed, a common misconception is that there was ever a linguistically or culturally uniform nation of Gallic people. By the Latin period, Celtic languages had diverged drastically from one another. The main split were the P-Celtic languages, spoken across north-central continental Europe and modern Britain, and Q-Celtic, the more lexically conservative tongues spoken by the Gaels of Ireland and probably the Celtiberians of Spain. This split can still be observed today in the modern Welsh and Irish languages, which are mutually unintelligible due to belonging to the P and Q subgroups respectively. It is unlikely that the speakers of their ancient counterparts would see any common ground between themselves. Gales and Celtiberians aside, the Gauls of the continent and Britons of the Isles to their north were perpetually a politically divided people. The main form of social organization in the Celtic world was the tribe, ruled by a hereditary chief and his warrior aristocracy. A chief's lands were further subdivided into administrative districts called pagi, governed by lesser houses loyal to the chieftaincy in a system similar to feudalism. Mainly through Roman records, we know that some notable tribes that existed in the late Iron Age include the Helvetii, Zenones, Veneti, and Tectosagis. Some names live on even today, such as the Belgae, who give their name to modern Belgium, or the Parisii, for whom the city of Paris is named. Still, the Gaulish peoples likely acknowledged elements of a common culture that was shared beyond tribal lines. One constant was the social hierarchy. At the top of the pyramid was the chieftain, who, like his Hallstatt ancestors, ruled rural communities from a hill fort which were constructed with timber lace and stone ramparts the Romans called Murus Gallicus. Under the chief was an elite aristocracy of warrior nobles. Next were craftsmen, mostly consisting of skilled metallurgists who lived in and around the chief's hill fort, supplying the warriors with arms and armor. 90% of Gallic society were subsistence farmers, providing a portion of their production to their chief who used it to maintain his warrior aristocracy, which in turn protected the farmers from external enemies in a mutualistic relationship. Four big adventures Wheat, barley, beans, oats and peas made up the Gallic diet, while sheep, pigs and cattle were commonly raised for wool, meat and milk. In the south of France, the Celts cultivated grapes and olives. Rather than being a primitive naturalistic people, as common perception implies, the Gauls were actually highly developed, with plows, iron shares and cultures able to efficiently till even the heaviest soils. Most Gauls lived in small, rural communities, in rectangular houses of timber, wattle, daub and clay, well insulated for cold winters. In Britain, Ireland and northwestern Spain, homes were mainly circular and built on unmortared stone. Architecture differed little between the social classes, though the feasting hall of a warrior aristocrat would be larger than a peasant's sheep farm. 
Greek and Roman writings and sculptures have given us a romanticized image of the average Gaul as a towering, red-maned noble savage sporting a manly moustache while painted head to toe in terrifying war paint. In reality, the average Gaulish man would not have been much taller than the average Roman or Greek. While fashion differed from region to region, the Gauls tended to dress conservatively. Men generally wore long-sleeved tunics and baggy trousers woven from flax and wool. Women tended to wear long dresses, while both sexes were often draped in cloaks decorated with colorful plaid patterns rendered from natural dyes of copper, berries, plants, and stale urine. <laughs> Personal grooming was highly important to the Celts. For example, both sexes were said to meticulously and painfully pluck all their body hairs. Additionally, there is some truth to the stereotype of the thick Gallic moustache. Depicted too. often in both Celtic and Greco-Roman iconography, it was likely believed to be a sign of manhood and virility. Gallic warriors were also said to have washed their hair in a mixture of slaked lime and water, which stiffened it into white spikes. Tattoos and skin dyes were not practiced by continental Gauls, and were limited mainly to the ancient Britons, who according to Roman accounts, rendered a bluish dye from the Asatis tinctoria flower called woad, which when applied to their flesh was said to provide magic protection in battle. Often of cultural or spiritual significance, jewelry was common among the upper classes. The brooch, a fastener for a cloak, was a remarkably enduring characteristic of Celtic fashion for centuries. Bracelets and arm rings were common, fashioned in the ornate swirling style characteristic of Latin art. The torque, a weight metal neck ring, was a symbol of status and rank, said to bestow the protection of the gods to whoever wore it. On that note, we should take a moment to explore the religion of the ancient Celts. There are two major misconceptions of ancient Celtic polytheism. One perpetuated by modern neo-pagan groups, who often portray the ancient Celtic faith as a pure, idealized form of proto-environmentalist nature worship, and one perpetuated by the ancient Romans, who sought to portray the Celts as backwards barbarians. The Gaulish gods did not belong to an ordered pantheon, and religion across the Celtic world was not uniform. Today we know of over 400 Gallic deities, most being the holy patron of a single tribe, or a local god associated with a certain area, like Sequana, who was worshipped only at the mouth of the river Seine. However, there are a handful of gods who were prominent across the Celtic world. These would include the thunder-wielding Taranis, Mappanos, the god of youth, Bellinus, the sun god, Kenanos, the horned one, Epona, the horse goddess, and Tutatis, the warlike tribal protector. One of their most popular gods was Lug, patron of business, trade, and technology, dismantling the misconception that Celtic polytheism was purely naturalistic. Celtic religious rites were rigidly structured and not unlike the Olympian religion when it came to sacrifice and divination. It was facilitated by a class of professional priests, the Druids. Today, the Druids conjure up a popular image of mysterious, long-bearded elders in white robes. However, they actually wielded massive political influence, often serving as peacemakers and diplomats on behalf of their chieftains, mediating legal matters, serving as healers, and heading education in their tribe. 
Training in order to become a druid involved an intense 20-year regimen in which a dedicant had to memorize a massive array of oral histories, lore, medicinal knowledge, astronomy, religious rituals, and divination practices. Meanwhile, magic potions that bestow superhuman strength on their drinkers are regrettably absent from druidic historiography. The druids likely belonged to a common order that existed beyond tribal lines. They hosted a pan-Gaulish meeting each year among the forests of the Carnites, sacred ground where major political or religious issues were settled between tribes, making them a key vehicle in maintaining a common identity among the many tribes. One of the key duties of a druid was to officiate sacrifices to the gods. Human sacrifice is often described as a core part of Celtic ritual. According to the Roman author Lucan, different yeah. gods called for different forms of ritual slaughter. Tudasis's victims were drowned in a vat of water, while Taranis called for men to be beheaded or burned alive in giant effigies of straw. According to the Greek historian Diodorus, human victims were also sacrificed for the purposes of divination. The Druids never wrote anything down, keeping their knowledge a secret restricted to members of their order. We will never have their own accounts of their religious rites, while the Roman authors who wrote about these practices had a vested interest in making their Celtic enemies look savage and barbarous. We can't deny the existence of human sacrifice, but we should also keep in mind the limited perspective that modern scholars have been offered on the subject. Between the 4th and 2nd centuries BC, Latin Celtic culture had assimilated its way across a staggering amount of Europe. This is exemplified by modern-day countries as far apart as Portugal and Ukraine, which both have provinces named Galicia, Land of the Gauls. Warfare played a huge role in this continental spread, which begs the question, what made the Celts such effective fighters? The stereotypical image of the Gallic warrior, perpetuated by Greco-Roman writers, is that of a savage, ferocious in spirit, but primitive in equipment and strategy. However, the full story is much more complex. For one thing, Gaulish arms and armor were highly advanced for their time. The Celts were master ironworkers who were able to arm their warriors with longswords and spears with specialized tips for either thrusting or throwing, making the average Gaul deadly in melee and ranged combat. For protection, the Gallic fighters bore a long oakwood shield with a hard iron boss for blunt force bashing. Most warriors wore agon and port type helmets, featuring a brimmed iron dome and a pair of wing-like cheek guards. There is also evidence that the Gauls were the inventors of chainmail, based on surviving pictorial evidence of a type of metal cuirass made of tightly linked iron rings, the earliest historical example of such technology. The Romans were so impressed by Gallic metallurgy that the legionary's helmet, his lorica hamata armor, and even his gladius and spatha swords were all adapted from Celtic or Celtiberian designs. So Roman armor as we know it today actually owes its iconic form in huge part to the innovations of the Celts. However, among the Celts themselves, body armor was rare, mainly reserved for select high-ranking nobles while most warriors went into battle wearing just shirts, trousers, or in some cases, nothing at all. 
the naked warrior is one of the most enduring legends of Celtic history. Historical evidence suggests a significant amount of Celts did fight nude, either for religious purposes or to inspire fear in their enemies. Surviving depictions of bare-skinned Celtic combatants in both artwork and historical record suggest that while the majority of Gauls did not fight naked, the practice was fairly normalized. The use of the iconic war chariot also bears mentioning, as they were used both as versatile mobile missile units and also as basic transport vehicles, quickly ferrying warriors from one theater of battle to another. For all their arms and armor, the principal advantage of the Gallic army was their ability to utterly terrify their foe. Both Roman and Greek records report on the petrifying nature of the Celts, claiming that before any engagement they would roar and brag, performing ritualistic war dances while bellowing a deafening sound out of their boar-headed war trumpets. Put yourself in the shoes of a superstitious plebeian, fresh off an ancient olive farm or the slums of Rome, and you can appreciate the supernatural terror that a mob of screaming, dancing, horn-blaring muscle men must have had.